Hey there, I'm Everett. I'm Baron. And welcome to Bro, Bro Have, Have You Seen? Alright, here we go. How's it going, bro? Good, bro. Welcome to another episode of Bro Have You Seen, where this week I'm asking you, bro, have you seen Taxi Driver? I have now. <laughs> nice. I don't know what to say to that. I have. Cool. Have seen this film? Yeah, this is a good movie, man. Um, I, I didn't think I would like the movie as much as I do just because I've been like reviewing it a lot that I've really dug deeper into the themes and the layers of this movie um, that I've really gained a deeper appreciation for it. Um, I've seen it a few times now. I just rewatched it for this episode. And uh, yeah, the first couple times, I mean, I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was fine, but I didn't really quite see the masterpiece level film that a lot of people tout this to be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I... Once I saw it, I knew it was something special for sure. Um, I picked up on some of the aspects and themes, deeper meanings, um, really loved a lot of aspects of it. But as I've dug more into it, read more about it, and as we've talked in preparation for this, um, I see that there's so much more to this and um, why it's such a highly acclaimed movie. So, Yeah, it's a classic of American cinema. It's Martin Scorsese's 1976 feature starring Robert De Niro, um, Sybil Shepard, a young Jodie Foster, and various other people who appear here and there. Harvey Keitel is in this as well. Um, he was the lead in Mean Streets, mm-hmm. and Robert De Niro was the supporting character, and in this movie they're flipped. And Robert De Niro plays Travis Bickle, who's a struggling, uh, disturbed loner who gets a job as a taxi driver drive around the underbelly of New York City, um, kind of just looking for something to um, put his efforts towards. He he wants there to be a redemption of this city. He wants the scum and the dirt and the filth to be washed off the streets. And of course, he's talking about some of the people um, that he sees everywhere. And that's pretty much the film is he's you know, he, he finds things that um, are worthy to be the object of his um, justice, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pretty much touched on a lot of the aspects um, of why one might want to watch this film. Um, all the things you said uh, sets this up very well. Um, definitely anyone who's interested in a good character study and uh, dive into uh, a disturbed mind. Um, and as you said, it's a very dark, gritty um, film of the underbelly of New York City and of crime. And uh, yeah, it's a definitely an American classic. So there's, there's some good reasons to watch this film if you have not seen it. And um, yeah. we'll just stop here and go <laughs> see this. Uh, we're going to dive straight away into the aspects of this film. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't seen it, Um, go out and see it if that's something that might interest you, but there are maybe some things that might hold you back if you're averse to extreme violence or just looking inside a darker mind. If that's disturbing somewhere that you don't really want to go into a film, then, uh, 
don't feel like you have to go see this, but um, if you haven't seen it by now, uh, I would recommend you go out and see it. It's definitely um, one of Scorsese's best movies, if not the best movie that he's done, and it's easily one of the best American movies from the 70s, mm-hmm. um, which For in sure. my mind is the golden era. It's well worth, well worth the time, and um, yeah. Yeah, cool. So Perfect. go out and see it. Uh, from here on out, we're going to get into some spoilers. Yep. Um, so if you haven't seen it, uh, turn it off, come back to it when you've watched it, and uh, bring your own thoughts um, to our discussion. So, Okay. All right, bro. Cool. Let's go into it. Okay. So like we said, Travis Bickle is our main character here. He's very disturbed. He's very um, – he has insomnia, so he's he's kind of on the edge. Right. Um, he's a Vietnam vet. vet. Um, throughout the film, we see him popping prescription medication and mm-hmm. – up in the dark, uh, late hours of the night, driving his taxi. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the writer, Paul Schrader, said that um, he wanted to make a film about loneliness. And mm. it wasn't until he wrote the plot that he finally found the true theme of the movie. He said that it, it wasn't really about loneliness. It was about self-imposed loneliness. Um, and so... A lot of what Travis is going through is his own doing, and he he puts himself in these situations where he can be first eyewitness to, like, the dark sides of New York. Um, so yeah, he, I mean, there's a there's a theme I think that gets brought up later in the film, but. Um, it said it's a quote from a Chris Christopherson song. Um, it's actually partially misquoted, but um, for the purpose of the movie, it's it's not that important. Um, the line is, "He's a prophet. He's a pusher. He's fact and fiction, a walking contradiction, something yeah, like that." Yeah. Um, the walking contradiction part really is, I think, the main theme of the movie. Um, in every aspect, not only within Travis Bickle himself, but within the film, there's a lot of contradictions that are taking place all at once. So I found that to be very interesting, and that's something we can bring up as we go forward into the plot of the movie. Very true. Yeah. Okay, so first we see him um, get a job uh, as a taxi driver, of course. <laughs> and it just kind of starts out developing his character. Um, we see him driving through the streets, um, like I said, uh, prescription medication issues and his insomnia. Um, we see his lonely eyes, as you were talking about loneliness, um, very well depicted. And we see a very grimy, neon, smoke, smoky nighttime portrait of New York City. Um, and like we said earlier, the underbelly, um, kind of, he talks about all the animals coming out at night, the scum of the earth, and that he hopes someday a rain will come and wash it all away. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. He's very disgusted with the people and the things going on at night. We see um, prostitution going on and... Just lots of terrible things, murder and drug use and, yeah, just crazy normal, well, normal life for these people in New York City. 
Yeah, and I think there's a lot of sort of like vague racism in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, he tends to look very slowly and there's very long looks at him towards um, the African-Americans on the streets. Yeah. And um, you can see that he has a contempt for just about everyone that he interacts with, but um, there seems to be something special about those those black people that he meets um, or, or just comes in contact with as he's driving around. Um, most of the movie is narrated. There's a voiceover right. by Robert De Niro um, as Travis, and, and that's actually a very common Scorsese um, trope that he uses a lot in his movies. Like a lot of them, pretty much, like they have an aspect of voiceover in one way or another. Um, and this one, a lot of our looks into the mind of Travis come from those, um, they're like diary entries that he does in his apartment every night. And um, it really gives us a, a good glimpse into what's going on in his troubled mind. May 10th. Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes even eight in the morning, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. Yeah, it's very interesting as well because um, I was mentioning to you earlier, it's a parallel I saw between The Great Gatsby, uh, a classic 20s novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald, where the narrator is unreliable because it's first person. So any information that we're gaining about the other characters and what's been happening, and it's all from their own perspective. So it's flawed and it's unreliable. And that's the case with Travis as well here. So Mm -hmm. that's a very interesting aspect of the film. Yeah, just everything that Scorsese does to set up this character in this world, um, he makes a very clear point to let us know that um, this is Travis's world. This is how he sees everything. Um, he, and he is very much alone in it. Um, like was said mm-hmm. by Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. the writer that, uh, it's about his loneliness and he likes it that way. In fact, almost every shot of Travis, he is the only one in the shot. Um, huh. when, when the shots are focused on other characters, part of him is visible. Um, but he's, he's either in the foreground and a bit blurry or in the background and a bit blurry. Um, but when it's a shot about him, he is the only one in the frame. And um, that is very um, important for us to know going forward that he, he separates himself from the world. He sees himself as different and better than them. And when everyone in the world acts like, quote unquote, normal people, um, he finds them disgusting and doesn't want to be around them. But as he's a contradiction, he constantly wants to be around them. He takes a job as a taxi driver. He tells the, the guy giving him the job, I'll work anytime, anywhere. Anytime, anywhere. He repeats that. And um, right. it just shows that he, he likes being around these people that he has this contempt for. And it's just this interesting paradox in his mind that um, he, he says that he hates it. But in his actions... Um, it proves him wrong, I guess. Yeah. He's willing to go anywhere. Like you said, at any time, he's willing to go to the sketchiest parts of the city and in the worst hours of the night where the most terrible stuff's going on. Like you said, with um, people that he totally despises um, being involved. Um, but as we see all these people he has tons of contempt for, there rises um, few that he deems worthy and mm-hmm. above all. And we meet Betsy, 
the first um, focus of his attention and his um, drive to do yeah. things. Um, yeah, very. She's she's um, introduced very well, and uh, yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, bro. Betsy, she works for Charles Palantine, who's a senator who's running for president, and he um, he has this campaign office in New York that Betsy works for. And Travis sees her in his day-to-day routine. He thinks that she's an angel. He thinks that she stands above the rest, like you said. Um, in one of his journal entries, he says, they cannot touch her. I first saw her at Palantine campaign headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mass. She is alone. They cannot touch her. Yeah, and it's he he spells it out very slowly and there's this this long slow shot of her kind of walking gracefully into that building yeah. uh, where she works and um yeah, he he obsesses over her um it's probably just like sort of a just sexual attraction. Like she's, she's a pretty woman. And, uh, um, she's of course played by Sybil Shepard, who was kind of a big yes. actress through the seventies. But, um, yeah, she, she, um, she's just kind of doing her job and Travis is staring at her through the window. Um, and she notices that as she's talking yeah. to the other guy that she works with, um, played by Albert Brooks and he, Travis, um, he comes in one day off the street and he asks her out on a date. He's very forthcoming and yeah. uh, he says that, um, um, he tells her, I think you're a very lonely person. I think that you need something. And if you want to call that a friend, you can call that a friend. But, um, you know, I want to, you know, I, I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you because, because I think... I think you need something more in your life. And that's a very interesting speech that he gives her because um, in a lot of the film, he sort of projects his own feelings on other people. Hmm. Um, he, he's like, he somehow can't admit the truth to himself about himself. And that's one of the first glimpses we get into his like sociopathic mind that um, he, he doesn't connect with people very well. And he doesn't even connect with himself that well. He's not very self-aware. Hmm. Um, and so he tells her, like, I think you're a very lonely person, which, of course, we know he's a very lonely person. Right. Um, and so he asks her on a date, and she accepts. Yeah, I think she had, she had a little hesitation there, but um, she was kind of putting him off, like, oh, I can't do it then, I can't do it then. He's like, okay, lunch break, like, do you have, like, a lunch break and stuff? He's mm-hmm. like, okay, fine, I'll go get coffee, like, we'll go get coffee and cake and stuff. Yeah, he's very persistent, but I think she's a little curious about him. Yeah. He's different than the other guys. For I think sure. she can tell that. For sure, just the way he comes in and just, like, is very blunt and very, um, like you said, forthright and just demanding and projecting himself. Um, and yeah, there's some comments about the other coworker. He's been observing them a little bit and it's just like, this guy's like dumb. This guy's an idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's once they're on their date, he sure doesn't hesitate to start trashing this yeah. other guy and talks about how I could see that you guys didn't have a connection. Yeah. But when I walked in, I felt that there was this impulse that we were both following. And, and I think uh, yeah. we really have a connection. I can see it in your eyes. And, um, 
you have very beautiful eyes. He talks about her eyes a lot. Um, yeah, eyes are kind of a big theme in the movie as well. Mm-hmm. As we as we talked about earlier, many shots of him driving through the streets are of his eyes. Just kind of that's like our window into his into his perspective and into his world. But, yeah, and at the same time, he he notices her eyes, but I don't think he really sees her. Um, mm. I don't think he sees most people as people. He kind of just sees them as objects walking around, and they're either in need of his um, justice and punishment, or they're in need of his uh, worship or attention. Yeah. And so it's very um, interesting how he how he frames all of that. But this is where we get the Chris Christopherson line. Chris Christopherson. Who's that? The songwriter. He's a prophet. He's a prophet and a pusher. Partly truth, partly fiction. Walking contradiction. She tells him that yeah. he's a walking contradiction. And I found that to be very interesting, as we've mentioned a little bit before, how he in himself is a contradiction in that, of course, a lot of the things that he does and says are very different from each other. In fact, polar opposites a lot of the times. Um, he he talks about how he needs to get organized, yeah. or organized. Organized, yeah. And, uh, but he, you look in his apartment, it's, it's a little bit messy and it's a little bit, um, and, and it reflects that he's not a very organized yeah. individual in his mind. It's pretty rough around the edges. Um, mm-hmm. um yeah. and just everything that Scorsese does in this movie to give us empathy for him. I think he's also actively undermining that by showing him, by showing us that Travis Bickle is not like us. He's separate from us and he feels like he's better than the rest of the people. Uh, one common motif that I noticed throughout the whole film is the windows. There are so mm. many windows or mirrors and it's a, it's a very clear separation between Travis and everyone else. Mm. And when he's framed in a shot, he's alone, but also the people are, are blurry around him kind of emphasizing that fact that that he doesn't see them as real people that they're just objects walking around and and uh, yeah. kind of like animals like he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting complex. Um and there's some other themes um that I noticed kind of and I've heard talked about is like his um like feminism and his his desire to save these women, these different women. Um, we have Iris and Betsy. Well, Iris we'll talk about in a little bit um, mm-hmm. as another character. But also his masculine side comes through with his violence um, that we'll see later on as well and his kind of spiraling nature into this violence. There's kind of some interesting um, dynamics and juxtapositions between those two kind of feminism feminism and masculine masculinity. Yeah, except I don't think I don't think he's really feminist at all. I think it's the very opposite in that he Mm. he feels like these women need saving. Right. And he's the one to do it. Um that they can't That's true. I guess that's not really feminism. That uh like for example, Iris later, she's like a teenage prostitute, she's Mm -hmm. like twelve and a half years old. Yeah. And um she may or may not want to get out of her life as a prostitute, um, but he takes it upon himself to force her to leave basically yeah um and uh maybe deep down like she wants to leave obviously it's not a great situation but at the same time like he he pities her for that i don't know if he really respects her um and i don't know if he really respects betsy either which is kind of interesting as we go to the next scene um he asks her out again 
during yeah. this breakfast, he's like, hey, let's go to a movie. And he takes her to a movie, and it's <laughs> a pornographic theater. Yeah. Um, and Which, she's like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, why are we going to this? Like, do you think I'm that kind of person? Yeah, she was very uncomfortable, very awkward. Yeah. It was, it was rough. That's just a rough scene. Yeah, super awkward. He's, again, super unaware of yeah. what he's doing. And uh, I think there's two ways to look at this. Either it it proves the fact that he is in his own little world. He thinks that people like this kind of stuff and that couples go here all the time, like he says. Or it could also be that self-imposed loneliness, that he kind of wants to have a relationship but deep down, he feels like he doesn't deserve one um, and that he, he wants to be alone. And so I think he might take her there on purpose to drive yeah. her away. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know which way I think about that. It's kind of a tricky... When I first saw it, I was mentioning to you that uh, I, I more sided with the fact that I, I thought he was genuine about being sorry about taking her there. I really thought that he thought this was okay. This was a normal thing for him to do. And when she reacted very negatively and he was like, I'm sorry, like, what can I do to make this up? And he, he later he gets her flowers and like trying to apologize. Like he really, I thought he was very genuine about that whole aspect, but I don't know. That's, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's again, kind of one reason why I've really come to love this movie is there's so many layers. There's so many interpretations mm -hmm. of what's going on. It's another contradiction. That, yeah. That yeah. I, I feel like, um, uh, makes this a very interesting topic for study and uh, why I wanted to show it to you yeah. in the first place. Um, so Betsy does not like this movie. Yeah. Um, makes her very uncomfortable. She leaves. She's like, how dare you? It was probably like 10, you? 15 seconds before she walks out. Like, it was... Yeah. Um, she's like, how dare you Like, take me here? Like, I'm not that kind of person. I don't want to see you again. And he, he keeps grabbing her arm like, mm -hmm. no, stay. Like, no, I'm sorry. Can we at least talk about it? Can we at least talk? Yeah, there's, um, there's another theater down here. Let's go to dinner. Like he's, Yeah, yeah. uh-huh. He's really desperate. Um, but she gets in a cab. She takes off. He's really upset. He even says, I have a cab. <laughs> Come on. If you're yeah. crying out loud, like, yeah. I have one of those. And she just left in, in one. Um, but I think it's shortly after that that he first comes in contact with Iris. Mm -hmm. And I think as much as he cares about Betsy. I think Iris is really the crux of the movie. She's the so. one, she's the one that fully gets him to turn over to his darkest right. impulses. Um, I think Betsy was maybe a step along the path, but Iris is, um, even more helpless than Betsy yeah. was and even and I, more yeah. alone and even more in need of, um, saving. Yeah. I think, I think that's very true because she's part of these groups of people that he despises she's she is a prostitute she is some of the scum of the earth that he sees and whereas betsy was the opposite she was the high um standard you know yeah so i think that's very interesting so yeah, yeah. and and maybe even i don't even know just thinking about this right now it's possible that he doesn't necessarily care about iris as much mm -hmm. as he cares about sport Sport is her pimp, yeah. played by Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Um, very well done role, I think. Um, yeah. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Gary Oldman's character in True Romance. I know you haven't seen <laughs> no, that, I but haven't. if anyone listening, I think they just play this kind of greasy, like weird yeah. dude, and like with this got that long hair and the wife beater, um, and he just one little bit that grosses me out every time is he's got that one red fingernail uh, his pinky oh, is yeah. like painted red and uh, it's so long and it's like i remember that. i don't know why but that just grosses me out so much 
Yeah, he's uh, a weird dude. But he he grabs Iris out the back of Travis's cab. Yeah. Um, because she's trying to run away. She's like, "Take me out of here. Let's just go." And Travis hesitates, like he doesn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of just wants to wait and see how it plays out, almost. Yeah. Um, but Sport takes her and throws a crumpled twenty at Travis and says, "Hey, cabbie, forget about this. It never happened." Yeah. Um, and Travis stares at that twenty for a long time. Um, I think that twenty represents almost like, um, I don't know. It's maybe him being uncomfortable with the fact that he is this sort of menial laborer like he's just a cabbie and um sport treats him like he's better than travis and and that's a little bit of interesting dynamic that i think Hmm. travis he's pretty spurned by that and he doesn't like being treated like that especially to someone that he despises at this point he's gross he's taking this child prostitute out to sell her body and um he just he has a big problem with i think sport and what he represents yeah and also i just thought of when Palantine yeah. is in the back one time he mm-hmm. cabs Palantine and that was a totally different um, interaction between him and Palantine between what happens with him and sport he's yeah. very like he he's Palantine's not the scum of the earth he's talking about and he opens up to Palantine about that like his views on the city and like somebody needs to clean all this crap up like geez yeah it's really and, the only time that Travis vocalizes yeah. his true feelings yeah one um, of the only times for sure yeah but that that was interesting as well because it's completely different from his interaction with sport mm-hmm. yeah he actually talks more in that scene with palantine than he does to almost anyone else in yeah. the movie it's kind of interesting yeah he is a very quiet silent character yeah. and i think that that lends a lot to the mood and the feeling of the film like mm-hmm. we're inside of his mind um and and it's very um, very reflective and very, um, very kind of somber tone the whole time. Um, and then this moment is when we meet our director, Martin Scorsese. Yes. He plays a man who gets into the cab and tells him to pull over to the side of the, of the curb. Yeah. Very insistent that he pulls over and continues hammering off instructions and, uh, just dialogue and tells him don't stop the meter just keep it running just keep it going just pull over no stay here and travis is just letting this happen letting this guy do his thing he doesn't really know what's going on he's like you see that see that window up there he's like that's my wife up there and and then he looks up there and he's like that's not my apartment like this is and she's like having an affair and he's like i'm gonna get a 44 magnum i'm gonna kill her like i'm gonna do it yeah i know i know you must think that i'm you know (laughs) you must think i'm pretty sick or something you know you must think i'm pretty sick Right? You must think I'm pretty sick? Hmm? <laughs> right? I bet, I bet you really think I'm sick, right? You think I'm sick? <laughs> you think I'm sick? <laughs> you don't have to answer. I'm paying for the ride. You don't have to answer. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird, like... Again, maybe a little microcosm of the contradiction of everything. It's just my feelings about this Scorsese character. Yeah. Is he's so funny. Like, just the way that he talks. He's, yeah. He speaks really fast. He's got that New York accent that we know Scorsese has. Uh, and he's, um, he's, he's spouting all these directions and, like, 
don't turn yeah. the meter off, don't turn the meter yeah, off. Yeah. Like, and he just keeps repeating himself over and over again. It's just, I don't know, he's kind of a very likable character. He's kind of character. frantic, he's kind of... Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, as, as likable as he is, he's super despicable because of oh, what totally. he's saying. And he's a very racist guy because um, his wife's having an affair with an African-American oh, guy. Yeah. Um, and and he just he says some very vile things about what a gun will do to her yeah. if he shoots her. And um, Travis is just soaking all this in. And I feel like you can see in his eyes that a light bulb just went off. You know, like um, this was after Betsy pretty much dumped him, didn't yeah. want to see him again. He keeps after sending all her of flowers. His attempts, yeah. And she's not answering his calls or anything. I think, did he even show up? He went into her office again and mm-hmm. he, the police, like, they're like, we're going to call, like, the other guy came over, we're going to call the police. He gets chased out of there, kind of, so. Yeah, he, he goes yeah. up to Betsy, like, I know, I know you're here. Like, why are you not talking to me? Come on. Yeah. Um, and he almost gets in a fight with that Albert Brooks character. And, um, and then he says, as he's walking out in a voiceover, so he's writing in his journal, at that moment I knew you were just like the others. Ah, oh, um, yes, I do. Or I knew she was just like all the others. Yeah. And um, that is an interesting, I mean, it's, it's a repetition of what we've said before, that he views these people as different, even though she's pretty much acting very normally, how yeah. a normal person would react to going to a pornography theater yeah, right. on a yeah. date. Yeah. And he's kind of stalking her, harassing her. Um, we see later in his apartment that she sent back all the flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also possible that he's imagining a lot of it. Um, Scorsese talks about in the commentary that um, he he wants to shoot. He wanted to shoot fantasy scenes um, with the same realism that he shot um, real life scenes, and um, it's very interesting that it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Um, and those flowers in Travis's apartment might be an indication that uh, maybe he never sent the flowers. But quite right. literally speaking, he, he probably just got them back from Betsy, who didn't want them. I think later he ends up burning them in his sink. Yeah, during he does. his during his spiraling transformation, yeah, he he cuts himself off from yeah. his love of her and moves on to Iris so later. But we're back at the uh, forty four Magnum Scorsese in the cab scene. Yeah, that's where he has the. I think that's where he has the idea of. Um, buying weapons and starting kind of his downward turn yeah you can kind of see in his mind like i was saying before you can see in his mind that he's thinking about betsy as um this man played by scorsese is um talking about how violently he's gonna destroy his wife and her body um and uh i think i think that's the first time that travis um has that idea um especially because in an earlier scene um, we see Travis with all of his other fellow cabbies and they're talking, just telling stories and all this stuff. And, um, one of them asks, Hey, do you have a piece? Oh yeah. You know, like you've carried some rough customers. You, you sure you don't want some protection? And he's like, no, I don't, I don't need a piece. I don't need a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it isn't until this guy who wants to shoot his wife is telling him about the destruction that a 44 Magnum can do that he really decides that. Um, yeah. And this is where, um, shortly after, he he uh, knows someone that connects him with a drug dealer who also sells um, counterfeit, well, not counterfeit, but, like, illegal weapons. Yeah. So they meet in a hotel room and checking out all the guns, and he ends up buying four of them. Yeah. And, uh, and as he's testing yeah. them out, just one shot that always stands out to me in this movie, um, he's testing them out, 
and he's pointing one out the window and we see his POV shot Mm -hmm. he's looking through Travis's eyes at the gun and he points it and he's aiming it and he goes from left to right very slowly and then he stops when a couple of people down on the sidewalk are in view and I found that very interesting thinking about Travis as a character that that he is a gun in search of a target he is this um, righteous mm-hmm. prophet and pusher like the Chris Christopherson song who he's looking for an outlet for his rage and his justice and his twisted sense of morality that um, he he ends up focusing on on Iris um, mm-hmm. as that representation in his life of all the scum that he sees out in the world so I thought that was yeah. a very good scene to kind of um, highlight in an artistic way what's going on in his mind and who he is as a person. Yeah, and maybe something else that um, could be from that symbolism-wise is he's, like, in the high-rise apartment and the people are down below. You know, he's on the higher level. He's the one that's right, and he, as we've talked about, like, we just keep repeating ourselves about <laughs> that. He believes he's better than everyone, and yeah. all these people are trash, and yeah, he's like going to inflict his justice. Yeah, and like you said, he's maybe an unreliable narrator. This yeah. whole film is from his perspective, exactly. so obviously that's how he feels. Yeah, that he's a for sure. Everyone. Um, but uh, I think maybe just before that scene, he's talking to Wizard. Yeah, played, yeah I like this scene a lot, actually. Played very well by Peter Boyle of Everybody Loves Raymond fame. Uh, but Peter Boyle, he's this other cabbie named Wizard. Yep. And I think this is a very, very interesting scene, very unique scene in the movie, as I think it's the second time that Travis actually vocalizes his feelings um, and he, it's almost, he's reaching out for help. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's his l- kind of last grasp for help. And I think he reaches out through his friend. That's also a cab driver that maybe has had gone through similar experiences dealing with. Um, and like we said, projecting his feelings, maybe he's thinking this other cabbie of his, that wizards had these same interactions with these scums. And what do I do? Like he, he's, he says like, I have some bad ideas. I, I yeah. just really want to do something like I've. Yeah, he's kind of just reaching out. I think for his last kind of um, last grasp at the straws before he's before we see him transform further into his madness. Yeah, and so he buys those guns, and he he commits himself to this rigorous uh, routine of yeah um, this regimen where he's he's working out. He wants every muscle to be tight, and he's holding his hand over the flame on his mm-hmm. gas stove. And he's just like getting himself ripped. He rigs up this arm holster thing so the gun slides from his basically his elbow up to his hand so he can just whip it out really yeah, fast. Yeah, his coat. He goes to the shooting range. He's getting really good at oh, his yeah. aim. Um, just uh, there's kind of this big montage, almost yeah, Rocky like in yeah. the way that it's set up. Of course, this movie came before Rocky, right? But uh, it, it reminds me of that in that he's he's this almost pathetic character who. Uh, is is doing a bunch of self training, trying to get himself ready for this this big thing that he feels like he needs to do. Yeah, he's doing pull ups, um, push ups, uh, <laughs> just yeah, working out and practicing with his guns and progressing. And um, his mm-hmm. his target here is Palantine. He's yeah. planned to assassinate him. I think before this, we've seen him talk to. I think it's around. It's the same time. I think it's next up. Is he's talking to one of the Secret Service members? Um, very funny interaction. Uh, yeah, really good scene in the movie. 
um, kind of just like, so yeah, secret, secret service guy, eh? Like, yeah, you're doing, doing a good job. Like, what kind of gun you carry? He's like, just like, had this, this weird conversation with him. Yeah, he feels like he knows so much about it. Like, he just looks yeah. so smug. Yeah. But it, we're laughing at him at the same time because, like, this this nerd, like, he thinks he's yeah so smart and so cool that he's on the level of this secret security guy. Uh, but really... Um, After maybe, a, what, a few days of training, training, quote-unquote? Like. Yeah, I know. And and the guy is actually taller than him yeah. by a few inches. Yeah, he's pretty tall. Yeah, it's a noticeable difference. And Robert De Niro is standing there, and I don't know how tall he is in real life, but it, the difference is pretty huge. Yeah. And um, I think it's to show, like, okay, this guy thinks he's hot stuff, but really he's just this little little guy um, in, in this scene. But I find it very interesting that he decides to go after Palantine. I think it might be sort of a, think an outlet a, yeah, to get back at Betsy. Yeah, I think so. Because she was a big Palantine supporter working on the campaign mm-hmm. in a way. I think I think that's what I noticed when I when I saw it. I was like, oh, he's going after Palantine because it's kind of the symbol of his fallout with Betsy. That's her, like, what she was passionate about and working on. And so this is kind of a way for me to, to get back at her and, in sort of a way. Yeah, and I think that he... I can't remember when exactly he has Palantine in the cab, if it's before or after Betsy breaks it off with him. I think it was after, I honestly. Think so. Which is strange. Because I think because... it was at his, one of his low, like, I think it was pr- yeah. pretty much near to the bottom. Yeah. Rock bottom, like it's was... another contradiction because he's telling Palantine, like, hey, man, I tell everybody who gets in my cab, yeah. they need to vote for yeah. you. He has a Palantine um, sticker, a yeah. wall thing on his wall. He has the pin when he goes to. Talk yeah. to the Secret Service guy, and when he goes to assassinate him, to kind of yeah. blend in. He's like, I wanted to put a sticker on my cab, but that's against their policy. Yeah, you know, what do yeah, they know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's he's really just kissing up to this guy. Maybe it's a ruse so the guy doesn't expect that he's going to come after him later. But uh, he asks him, hey, Travis, what uh, what do you what do you want? Like, what's... I um, can't remember the exact question he asks. Right. But he's like, if I became president, like, what what would you want? And he says you know, someone really needs to clean up the city. Mm. It's another time that he's repeated it. Like we said, it's the time he vocalizes his opinions, and we don't need yeah. to go back into that again. But um, anyway, it's very it's another contradiction that he is very supportive of Palantine, but then he's going to go kill him. And yeah, it's kind I of thought that was a unique, unique, unique conversation yeah. with Palantine that we feels touched like, on. feels like he just, like, he's all over the place in his mind, and he just he's not very consistent as a person. It's, it's very unsettling. Um, and... That unsettling nature, I feel like, is done very well in the filmmaking aspect too. We've got, we've got a great score by Bernard Herrmann. His uh, yes. last his score, his last score, which is very interesting. Yeah, um, he died very shortly after this movie, and it's very soothing, for the most part. That main but theme with like, the sax, yeah, just also just, haunting, like yeah, in a way. It's very like the opening scene and a lot of the scenes are very much indicative or evocative of like a horror movie, yeah, of horror tropes. Um, we get very creepy sound effects and red flashing and these eyes looking around and mm-hmm. it feels like an Alfred Hitchcock, like a right. psycho or something. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the rest of the score, that main jazz saxophone theme is very mellow and cool and just kind of puts you at ease, almost lulls you to sleep. Yeah. Um, but Pretty then Scorsese... Scorsese balances that with a lot of quick cuts mm. and he's he's like trying to unsettle you. He even says that in the commentary that like That's awesome. I did a lot of quick cuts to to kind of jolt the audience and thinking that like 
to know that this guy's very frantic and he's unpredictable. Interesting. Um, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. So shortly after all this training sequence and he's scoping out the Palatine rallies, he he goes to the brothel of Iris, and this is when Harvey Keitel's scout or scout sport <laughs> his uh he's just saying a bunch of vile things about yeah. her. Almost bind, um, pretty much bind her back. Like yeah. yeah, you can tell that he doesn't value her as a person. For sure. Which is contradicted by his profession to her later that uh, he loves her and you know he wishes yeah, that yeah. every man can know what it's like to be loved by her. Uh, um, it's yeah. just kind of sick and twisted. Yeah, and makes rough. you feel gross inside. But yeah, sure. he's telling him all this stuff and he's telling him the prices and uh, he whips out the money and he's like, whoa, 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 don't give me the money. Go give it to her. Like you're not... Yeah. You're not doing anything with me, you're doing it with her. So mm-hmm. um he goes up with Iris to her this hotel room thing, the guy at the building he says yeah, the time, he's like the timekeeper, yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, do you want to go into that scene between yeah. him and Iris? Yeah, okay, so I think he gives um this is where he gives him the crumpled twenty, the uh timekeeper guy. Yeah, I think it's on the way out. Yeah, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. okay. My bad. So yeah, he goes up, um, you know, she tries making moves on him um for her profession you know yeah as a prostitute um, she just goes right down to business yeah she's just she doesn't really that's what she does um but he's persistently denying it and push putting pushing her away and like no i'm helping you like we're gonna get out of here like i'm gonna take you out of here i'm gonna save you this is like you know this is what he's gonna do <laughs> this is what he's focused on now and um mm-hmm. yeah she kind of is hesitant and uh not really. She doesn't really want to leave, but no. at the same time, maybe she has mixed feelings about leaving and not yeah. leaving. Um, I mean, it's a pretty rough environment. She's only 12 and a half years old. Um, he's, I think he says, you should be in school. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Like, be with your family and, you know, enjoy these things as a, being a kid and not, not doing these terrible things. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. She, she talks about how, uh, I think it's later at the, at their breakfast together, um, she talks about how her family didn't want her and her home right. life wasn't very good. That's why she ran away. But um, she, earlier in that scene with him and her in the hotel room, that she um, is talking about how um, she was stoned that night when she tried to get into his cab. Right. She wasn't in the right mindset. That's why sport's there. He protects her. He keeps her mm-hmm. safe from herself. Um, and it's, I think you can tell that she doesn't really believe it. Um, but it's something that she's told herself over and over and over again, because uh, maybe she ran away from home and she realized that this wasn't the life that she thought it would be, uh, probably not as much of an escape from her home as, as she was hoping for. Um, but, uh, yeah, he fails in his attempt to get her to leave with him, but she does accept an invitation to breakfast the next day. Yes. Yeah. And this is when, then on the way out, he gets the, gives the crumpled 22, the timekeeper guy, and he says something along the lines of, you know, buy yourself something nice, don't spend it all in one place type of thing. <laughs> um, and he leaves, and then from there, where do we go next? Yeah, next? so he is back on the streets, he's driving around his cab, kind of in the yeah. mund- mundanity, if that's a word of things. Um, <laughs> Mundane. And he goes into this convenience store, and oh, yeah. there's a guy who's sticking up the place, he's trying to get the money. And Travis, he wants to be the hero, and he comes up behind the guy, and he says, hey, and then he just shoots him. <laughs> yeah, that was intense. That was and, crazy. Um, yeah, so he... With no hesitation or, like, 
remorse afterwards. It's just yeah, cool. and not and not a very wise tactic for like. I mean, you could tell that he wanted to kill a guy. You know, like, yeah. he wasn't trying to de-escalate the situation yeah. at all. Yeah. But he wanted to kind of get his feet wet with yeah, this whole gun for sure. thing for sure. Uh, see if he could do it. See if he could actually go through with shooting someone. And he does, but he's afraid because his re- his weapon is not registered, and he will get in big trouble if they catch him. So the convenience store owner, he's like, "Hey, take I'll take the gun. Don't worry about it, man. Don't worry about it. Just get out of here." Yeah, he's like, "I'll take care of it." Um, yeah, and it was the African American man, which plays into the yeah. racism. It's like he's just taking him down one by one at yeah, this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that happens, and that's again, it's it's a scene that tells us. Um, that he's he's getting ready, he's ramping up to do this yep. Palatine execution yep. uh, assassination thing, um, okay. and I think he he has breakfast with Iris first. Yes. Um, he again tries to take her with him. You need to be in school. Um, she says no. She talks about yeah, maybe I would want to go to this commune where people are nice and. You know, sort of like a hippie thing. Yeah. Um, and he, she invites, she invites him to go with her actually, um, but he he declines. He says, "I don't really get along with those people. I don't." Really yeah, like those, those as they've kind, kind of built some sort of rapport between them. Um, yeah. So she invites him and. Yeah. He doesn't want to go. Yeah. Um. I should I should mention I don't know if we've mentioned but uh, Iris is very well played by Jodie Foster. Yeah. Um. And so anyway, this is. One of her earliest roles. Yeah, I think uh, I was reading a little bit on MDB and the trivia. She was too young to be there during like some explicit scenes. Right. And so they had her older sister stand in as a body double. Huh. Kind of interesting. She interesting. was also an actress at the time. That's cool. Um, so very interesting. But, but yeah, she was in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, the previous film by Scorsese, um, as a sort of tomboyish friend to the son in that movie. Awesome. Um, very good film. Very, very good film. Very, very different from this one <laughs> in many ways. Uh, I mean, Harvey Keitel plays a creepy dude just like in this <laughs> one, but maybe not as creepy. Um, yeah, so he says, I'm not going to go with you to that commune, but I will give you some money. I'll send you some money because I don't have anything better to do with it. I make a lot doing this cab job. and I right. just, He hasn't spent really anything. Yeah, he has lots of money. You can tell he doesn't really care about material wealth yeah very minimal apartment uh his personal he wears like pretty much the same outfit every day and uh where's that army jacket not fantastic hygiene and living conditions like like i said but yeah anyways a little tangent but uh, right after that scene he fully dives into this bad boy i'm gonna go kill slaughter everyone rampage moment he 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 burns those flowers well he just goes to palatine first right the attempt yeah, yeah, I know. Okay. He, he burns those flowers. Okay, he shaves his head into the mohawk. Yeah. That iconic look with yeah, the sunglasses and the Yeah, the shot mohawk. we see is him standing against a, a fence at the Palatine rally. And he's it's at his like waist level. And he's opening his pills. And then it pans up as he's going to take them. And we see his shaved forehead. and I, His shaved head, sorry. And I think he has sunglasses on in that shot as well. Probably. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's the iconic, iconic look shot of him. And, um, yeah, I mean, very flashy camera work by Scorsese yeah. again here. I don't know if that shot really means much. It's just sort of informative. Yeah. I think it was just an interesting way to yeah. present the information. It wasn't just mm-hmm. like a shot of him standing there. It was just yeah. a little bit more dramatic, mm-hmm. drawn out. Stylistic. Yeah. Yeah. A little more artistic. But, uh, I mean, maybe it represents like 
the his power is growing in that scene. His confidence mm-hmm. is through mm-hmm. the roof. And the right. camera brings you up to his level like, I'm going to do this thing. Right. And uh, he goes up to Palantine with his hand in his jacket. Yeah, he's Palantine had just finished. Mm-hmm. He's walking down. The security guy we've, uh, Secret Service we've talked to before um, is walking down. And he notices Travis's hand in his jacket and says, hey, get that guy. And then Travis escapes. Yeah, he runs with, off. With no no assassination to show for it. I know. He's not satisfied, man. He's got to go kill yep. somebody. And so... He goes off to sport once again. Yeah. He uh, this he, is... he mails that money to Iris, I believe, yeah. at this moment. Um, uh, and he, I don't know if he mails it. He might have mailed it to Iris I at that point. Did. But uh, yeah, he shows up. Sport says, hey, man, get out of here. Like, what the heck are you doing? Go away. No, he's like, I don't even, rec- who are you? Like, he doesn't recognize him, I don't think. Mm. I think that, I, if I remember right. Maybe. He's like, who are you? Like, man, and then he, and then he just... Whips out a gun and shoots him right in the stomach. Yeah, he's provoking him, man. What are you going to do? You're going to shoot him in the gut. Yeah, dude. What else would you do? I mean, geez. Yeah, so he shoots him, shoots Sport, and then he goes in. And he shoots that timekeeper guy on the stairs in the hand. Yeah. He gets shot in the neck by, by Sport. another guy. I think it was by Sport. Yeah, and there was another gangster in the mix as well. Uh-huh, so there was. He was like up. I think guys. he was with uh, Iris at the time. Right. Sort of in there doing bad things, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. yeah. So Sport, I think, shoots him in the neck. He turns around, kills Sport, yeah. and he's going up. You know, he's like bleeding profusely out of his. It's neck. It's good that he has like four guns though, because yeah, he just keeps. He's gunning. like barely breathing. Yeah, like, that is he, insane. He's got this crazed look on yeah, his face. He's got it. Yeah, he's like plugging his neck wound. Uh huh. A lot of blood in this scene, um, but uh, Scorsese actually washed the colors. Yeah. So he could get an R. Yeah. Like not as vibrant and bloody as maybe a Tarantino flick would be, mm-hmm. but uh, anyway, he kills pretty much everyone in there. He's on the verge of death himself. Uh, he tries to kill himself, but he, his gun is out yeah. of bullets, and um, the cops show up, and he just brings his hand to his head, bloody finger, yeah. very slowly, and mimics the sound and motion of him shooting himself in the head, and uh, yeah, it's just it slows way down that moment and this is where we get one of the one of my favorite and maybe one of the best shots in this movie mm-hmm. uh it's an overhead shot looking down from the ceiling of the apartment down to all the chaos that has just ensued as it crawls slowly with the bernard herman score on full effect just crawls slowly through the apartment down some of the stairs we mix it fades into some other shots of blood uh, pan panned across the wall some pan shots of the blood and just really cinematic just final insane of what's all happened all the dead people and just crazy and the cops showing up and all the people standing in the streets yeah um, yeah yeah insane. there's there's very few overhead shots in the movie and um scorsese mentions that uh they are supposed to show the the ritual almost almost a religious mm. uh sense of of what's going on the first time we see it is when Travis is getting the job. Um, mm. It shows that. Oh, desk I do remember that. I lo- yeah, of, I do remember him that. getting the getting the taxi permit or whatever it was. And then the second time was when he's talking to Betsy and he's telling her, "I see all this stuff on your desk and it means nothing." Um, and it shows his hand panning over that she's got mm. two phones and a bunch of paper and yeah. you know just a regular office desk that she's doing a lot of work on and all that. Um, and then. I don't know if there is another overhead shot until I think that's that moment one. when uh, 
it slowly kind of cranes up yeah and uh it it floats over the walls of this building yeah um you can see that it's a set um but it's it's very very stylish and very um interesting and moody at that moment yeah Um, but that's not the end of the movie you know he could have ended it there but there's a couple more beats that we need to get to yes um so he didn't die surprise i that i did not expect that honestly yeah i i mean he took quite a few bullets and he seemed like he was just gonna die there on the couch yeah it looks like the bullet barely grazed his neck so it you know, he probably was able to stop. I think the he took another bullet in the enough. side from another guy later. Probably. In that same fight. Um, but um, this time, instead of getting the voiceover by Travis, we're getting a voiceover from Iris's father. Yeah. He is reading a letter that he wrote to Travis, thanking him for what he's done. He read about it in the paper. Um, he's basically a hero now. Yeah. And it's very strange it's pretty crazy it's kind of tragic how that happened because travis didn't set out to do this as a hero to the public he wasn't trying to take down for everyone else necessarily this prostitute organization maybe like i don't know i think he was i think he was looking to be a hero he was looking to clean up the streets and be recognized that's true that's true but i think he thought that he would die um, yeah for it and maybe even be revered as more of a hero as he he went into to kill all these guys at his own expense a suicide mission um but what's tragic about it to me is that he he doesn't really deserve it you know he's not the kind of person that we should be glorifying (laughs) he's not the kind of person that we should be applauding i shouldn't be looking up to this guy yeah (laughs) no and it's very timely even today and it's very it's still relevant the themes that it presents in that it seems like um it seems like when say school shootings or you know any kind of these like mass killing events happens that the victims are rarely mentioned but the killers yeah. are almost put on a pedestal or they're put on display for everyone to know their Immortalized, names forever yeah. very interesting um and the last final scene we get uh, he's back on the streets man he's he's out there kind of didn't expect this picking up fair yeah because he has his hair back, he's back to his normal routine, he's doing the same job after all this happened. Mm-hmm. He's got that scar on his neck though, yeah. you can see that yeah. prominently. But uh, who else gets in his cab but Betsy? I know, right? She gets in the back, she's just looking all fabulous, uh, and it's like kind of like a slow motion-ish scene where, you know, she's almost like, I don't know, Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca. It's very surreal, just, it's yeah, very... very soft colors and yeah. lighting and neons of the city again and yeah it's um it's a very whimsical almost sort of scene but uh she gets a ride home from travis and she says how are you i read about you in the paper and he's like yeah you know it's nothing um but then he drops her off and doesn't let her pay for the fare so he he yeah. did it for free basically and uh yeah um he and, drives off and he says so long and that's the last line of the movie yeah, what um, do you think about that? Betsy getting in his cab, what does that mean? Why is that in the dude, movie? Why dude, did she I go don't back? know. <laughs> it's crazy. I, I don't know. It's an interesting interesting wrap-up, I guess. Of it, It's interesting how she mentioned that she read about him in the paper. I think that's an interesting little tidbit there. Yeah. The, the expression on her face when she gets into the cab doesn't 
show me at all that she was surprised to see him. It's almost like she went out yeah, it's to almost, his cab. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like she was looking for him. Yeah, like she wanted some kind of reconciliation. Maybe she... Yeah, maybe she feels bad at this point. she thought he was a hero and wanted yeah. to be with him again. I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's very open-ended. Yeah. And kind of mm-hmm. up for interpretation. Yeah, well, if anyone's listening to this, let us know what you think about that. What are your thoughts about the ending and how it all wraps up? Uh, we're, hopefully we walked you through the plot well enough without being too boring and droll about it. Uh, Hopefully we provided some interesting insights. Um, What did you think about this movie, maybe on a broader sense, as we, as we leave the film narrative itself, what, what does this overall impact mean to you? What is it trying to say about society and culture as a whole? Um, First of all, I'd say I haven't seen a lot of Scorsese movies. I mean, this is my second one. I've seen this and Hugo, so (laughs) I think that's it. I don't know if there's any others. I don't think I've seen the others. Probably not. He doesn't do very many sort of um, family-friendly movies. (laughs) But um, I definitely loved the direction of this movie and all of the themes as a whole. As I said in the beginning, I maybe didn't pick up on everything, but um, I'm sure on subsequent viewings I will enjoy and appreciate more aspects but um as a whole I think this is it draws from many influences um you were telling me that Scorsese is really just a student of film and he's always talking about movies I always heard him talking about eight and a half by Federico Fellini or is that by Antonioni I get that's Fellini okay good yeah (laughs) okay by Federico Fellini um I watched that movie and I think there's some some beats in this movie especially that final scene that are very reminiscent of um, Eight and a Half, um, very dreamlike sequences, surrealism. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely draws many influences and has influenced many, many movies since. Um, yeah. I haven't, you have seen this, but I haven't, but The Joker, 2019, that came out. Um, Todd mm-hmm. Phillips was the director of that? Yeah, Todd Phillips. Um, talk about a little bit more about that and its um, comparison to this movie. Yeah, well, Todd Phillips is most famous for the Hangover series, uh, mm. quite different from Joker, <laughs> which came out the last year. And um, yeah, I-, I liked Joker the first time I saw it. Um, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was pretty well done. Joaquin just blows everything away as far as his talent. Uh, it wasn't his best performance, probably, but I think he deserves all the attention he's been getting for that performance. and. Mm-hmm. Critics and people who give awards for movies definitely like uh, when people play the Joker. <laughs> yeah, you know Heath Ledger won a posthumous Oscar for oh, that role yeah. in Dark Knight. But um, Joker, I mean, the more I've looked at it since, and going back and studying this movie a little bit more deeply, Joker just feels like a pretty obvious ripoff <laughs> uh, without some of the nuance that this movie brings to the table. Um, like I said, I feel like every shot is almost condemning Travis for what he's doing. I don't think we're supposed to agree with his choices as much as we're seeing things from his perspective. I think we're supposed to be put off by his actions. Um, and I didn't really feel that from, um, Arthur Fleck in the Joker. Uh, I felt like he was like supposed to be a very sympathetic character Mm. who, uh, is down on his luck and he deserves a redemption of some kind and he gets it through killing, which is not good. Um, especially in this day and age. But, um, yeah, in any case, I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, it just feels like it it really tried to copy 
taxi driver and just and just didn't do it as well um just from a cinematic standpoint um but uh yeah i mean it's it's a fine movie i didn't have really any problems with it as a as a real narrative story but uh obviously taking a grander perspective it's probably not the best thing that that was put out last year but hey it's got like 11 oscar nominations so uh you know some people really like it happens yeah, but I also, interestingly, I found a lot of influences that this had on Pulp Fiction. Uh, Pulp Fiction mm. is like my second favorite movie ever yeah. made. I've seen it so many times, and uh, that helped me when I watched this. I just, um, while Joker, I feel like, pulled entire characters and plot <laughs> threads out of this movie and just put them copy-pasted into that movie, I feel like Tarantino is, has a little bit more class when he borrows from other um, films and uh, just little things like Palantine's reading Travis's name in the taxi and uh, Butch does right. that in Pulp Fiction <laughs> with uh, Maria or Esmeralda Villalobos and uh, it's very that's a very good scene but nice. uh, there's just a bunch of little little touches that I noticed um, Tarantino pulled from um, that, that were very good and uh, yeah, just you can see the influence. It's actually one of Tarantino's top five favorite movies of all time, <laughs> and uh, he talks about this movie quite a bit. Um, yeah, um, kind of like I said before, like as a whole, culturally, I think uh, it, it maybe it seems like it wouldn't age super well, but in the fact that it is criticizing this type of person and the, the glory and fame that they get yeah. after they've committed these horrible acts... Um, it, um, I think it stands very relevant today. So. Yeah. It's interesting how it is still very relevant. Like it's still, and it's also still very enjoyable. Um, released in 1976. So it's 40 years old. Yeah. about. So yeah. Getting close. It's, it's crazy. I mean, lots of old films age pretty well. Um, some don't, this one does. Um, yeah. And like we've said, it's very culturally significant, um, with, it influencing so many movies to come and other directors like Tarantino. Um, mm-hmm. I think it might be even yeah. be on the AFI top 100 list, which yeah, take it or leave it, however credible that is. But, I mean, hey, it's the American Film Institute. They're, yeah. they're somewhat credible, I think, yeah. in, their, in their rankings. And but. it's insane how people can still um, can still break this movie down and explore the themes of it as we've yeah. done. Um, yeah, I'm excited to check this one out again later. Yeah, uh, later on, so. for sure. Yeah, I guess we should be wrapping up now. Um, yeah, that was um, a very good discussion. And uh, again, let us know your thoughts. We're we're on Twitter at at bro underscore scene. Yep. You probably just search bro. Have you seen? And you'll find us. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, um, I guess we can move on to our next and final segment. Bro, what has been entertaining you recently? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Let's start with you. What's been entertaining you lately? All right. Well, okay, just a little uh, preface. Uh, it's beginning of February, February, 
And last month, I think I logged, like, 40 films, so I've been kind <laughs> of going crazy. Like, I just, I've just been watching lots of stuff, um, but it's been really good because in the past, I've had weird phases where I've just been, like, only Criterion movies, like, weird foreign stuff, or only, like, Fast and Furious. Like, recently, I've had, like, a good array of foreign films and acclaimed ones that are more homeworky and other ones that I've just been interested in watching for so long. Um... Just in the past week or so, I watched uh, a Hayao Miyazaki film, Ponyo, um, very good. I watched Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless from 1960, um, very important French New Wave movie. I um, was glad to finally watch that. I watched Wes Anderson's um, sophomore film, Rushmore, from 1998. Um, that was fantastic as well, just always super good. We'll probably and, be talking um, about that at some point yeah, later on. Yeah, definitely, and mm-hmm. Wes Anderson's work. And I watched Brazil from Terry Gilliam from 1985. So a lot of these movies I've been hearing lots of good things about for so long. Glad to finally check them out. Um, what about you, bro? What's been entertaining you recently? Yeah. Um, so lately I've started this project uh, that I call the Martin Scorsese Deep Dive. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I made a list of like just a ton of different directors that I want to complete all of their feature films. And I started with Martin Scorsese as I just recently watched ta- uh, not Taxi Driver. I did recently watch that. <laughs> but, uh, I recently watched The Irishman. Uh, it's nominated for Best Picture this year, and it's got some other Oscar buzz. Um, it's on Netflix, The Irishman, and uh, it's very good. I I always I often forget how much I like Scorsese's movies, yeah. and uh, every time I I press play on one of them, I'm just like transported into this world and i love being in that world and so i decided that i was going to watch all of his movies i'd only seen about half of them before this um i'd seen mean streets before i'd seen taxi driver before goodfellas wolf of wall street i've seen like three or four times um and probably a couple others but um yeah i just decided i would go through all of them chronologically Uh, i decided to start with boxcar bertha that was like his first kind of studio film and so, yeah, I did that, and I just kind of been going day by day. You know, I went from Boxcar Bertha to Mean Streets to Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore to Taxi Driver, and uh, tomorrow will be New York, New York. Nice. Um, don't know anything about that movie, so I'm kind of excited <laughs> to delve into That's it. That's awesome. But I've been writing, like, page-long reviews about it. I'm probably going to publish it into a little book for my own personal collection, um, just so I can look back on my thoughts about one of my favorite directors. That's awesome. Um, but I'm also burning my cinematic candle at both ends as uh today i just watched fast and furious yes um, which is the fourth installment in the franchise it's it kind of been fast and the furious it's fast and furious uh, okay. yeah okay i should uh, know i've fan. been i've been going through those kind of slowly but yeah i decided that uh Another project instead of studying a film so heavily and deeply i i just like some popcorn cinema every now exactly. and then. it's just exactly. fun and hilarious and i can laugh at the cheesy one-liners that's definitely good to have a great mix of dom of and the gang but it's great um that's, that's been entertaining awesome. me I'm trying to think of what else it's about it just been working hard on school and all that stuff so i don't have tons of time yeah been very entertained by the odyssey <laughs> Ooh, yes so yeah. i actually like the odyssey it's pretty good <laughs> it's pretty good as a story <laughs> But yeah, anyway. Um, awesome, bro. Well, cool. thanks for recommending Taxi Driver. It was a fantastic movie. Again, yeah. recommend it to anyone out there who has not seen it. Um, I guess by this point, if you haven't seen it, well, sorry. But <laughs> if you have seen it, then you've been here and listened to us. But um, thanks for checking it out. Um, 
drop a rating uh, review on iTunes and Spotify. It really yeah. help us out in these early stages and uh, stay with us as we progress and get better at this. So. For sure. Yeah. Definitely. Five-star ratings help a ton, help us grow the show. Yep. So uh, any anything you can do would be much appreciated. Yes. Um, and, yeah, let us know. Give us your feedback on everything uh, on Twitter and uh, maybe follow us on Letterboxd if you want. Yeah. Uh, so catch you next time, guys. All right. Bye. See you, bro.